So let's take a look at God's Word today as we find it in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14. We're on a series where we've been going through the beautiful, messy bride of Christ, the church. So much beauty and a lot of mess as well. And this is not a surprise to God. In fact, he is designed for us to be in community. That is both beautiful and messy. That's where the gospel, the good news of Christ, does its work. We are the soil in which he is cultivating a new community. And he gives us a picture here of what that community looks like in corporate worship. Paul has already begun discussing that in the last verses that we looked at. And so we're picking up right here in verse 26, kind of an ongoing uh, flow of his conversation about corporate worship. Uh, if you were here with us last week, we discussed uh, the idea of tongues and prophecy and what that looks like and how we uh, apply it. And he's picking up a little bit more on that this week and giving some more structure to how we're supposed to understand and apply it as well. So that, that's a little bit of a backdrop as we read this uh, ongoing text here, in verse, starting in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should, first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet, we're spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Well, this is the word of God. And you can see why I need your prayer Especially in our modern context, and these, these words may come across as a bit uh, abrasive and even oppressive, uh, perhaps, un understandably so. One, one of the things I'm very grateful for is if you've uh, been, been here with us, you might note that this particular passage in chapter 14 is bookended by two important conversations. In chapter 13, Paul has taken a break to remind us that the motive for absolutely everything, if you call yourself a Christian, is love. As you may know as much as you can about all these great things, you might speak in tongues or have the gift of prophecy, and we tried to discuss what that means, but if it's not done with love, 
it's of no value whatsoever. Now that's a very clear message that Paul has given. No matter what you do, if the motive isn't love, it's off point and it's not beneficial. That's clear. And then it's bookended too, as we'll see as we get into chapter 15, with the basic essentials of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he starts giving, and we did the Apostles' Creed, and in part intentionally because next week Paul starts saying, here's the basics of the faith that I delivered to you. And we'll start unpacking what that looks like. And so those two things are very clear. Right? There's, they're, they're very obvious. They're very important. The motive of love and the basics, the essentials of the faith. And now here we have in chapter 14 a practice within the scope of the gathering in the church of Corinth that has some instructions that seem a little out of touch, as, as it were. So I, I just want to remind you, I don't think they are, and we'll try to unpack that, but of where this is placed is Paul wants to make it clear that everything we do is done in love and that the reality of the basics of faith as he unpacks them in 15 are what's most important to those two things together. So how do we deal with a text like this? What is Paul saying? What's his intent? Where, where is he headed with this? And how do we apply it today? Well, I want to suggest that maybe the easiest way to, to think about this is really through some kind of topical considerations that provide the backdrop for understanding this text. And the first word that I think is helpful here is, um, is creation. Let's begin with creation. That's a helpful place to start. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And so as we look back at that in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, the first words of the Bible, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, that's where the whole story starts. And if you are familiar with that passage, it goes on to say in verse 2, Now the earth was formless and empty. In the Hebrew, tohu v'bohu, which means it was chaotic. It had no shape. It had no apparent purpose or structure. And so God, in the beginning, when he creates and he speaks the creation into existence, he is taking chaos and he is making it ordered. He is taking emptiness and he is giving it structure. He is taking formlessness and giving it purpose. He is taking confusion and he is giving peace. That's God's character and his nature. There's a story even before creation, and we've seen it already in the book of Corinthians that God is three in one. That is the Trinitarian fellowship from all time before he even spoke these opening lines. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing in perfect fellowship. And so when he creates, part of that creation is a reflection of the perfect peace in which he dwells also. And that perfect peace has a structure and order to it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In mutual submission to one another with different roles. Not 
talking about their dignity or their worth or their value, but their function. And that is what he does. So God, out of his character, when he speaks in a place that there's only chaos and void and a lack of purpose, he speaks peace and he gives structure. And you read about that in the rest of Genesis 1. And what Genesis 1 tells us is that the pinnacle of that creation is man himself. That man has been made in the image of God. And that Greek or that Hebrew word for man, uh, Adam, you're right, the, the first man. And when he, he takes uh, man and he, he creates man, he then creates woman out of man. And the Hebrew adds to that as well, the same word with a little bit of addition. So here they are in this order of creation, God bringing out of chaos, peace and harmony and structure and reflecting that in man, who's made in his image, distinctive from the rest of creation, he is himself God's glory. He is to image God, not only in his intelligence, but in bringing peace out of disharmony and bringing order out of places where there is chaos. And if you know the rest of the story of the Bible, that all happens in Genesis 1 and 2. But what happens in Genesis 3? They're told this is what it looks like to maintain shalom or peace. There's one restriction there. And because man chooses instead to take from this tree they were forbidden, everything is disrupted. Disharmony enters the world. And out of the peace comes chaos. This is, it seems, the way of man, isn't it? That the God, God who's given us structure and says, this is what peace looks like, we say, we've got a better plan. We don't like the way you've structured and ordered it. Maybe there's a better improvement. We've got the beta version that's an upgrade. That's basically what man has said. Now look, last week when we talked about tongues, we noticed Genesis 1 through 3, we're at Genesis chapter 3 right now, and man is then, as a result of sin, everything that's supposed to be peaceful is brought under, under chaos as well. And God does kind of a, a do-over in Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood and one man who's righteous, Noah, who comes in Genesis 10. There's a table of these new nations now. And in Genesis 11, what's man doing? Trying to build a tower up to the heavens because they've got a better plan again. And God said, this is the way of peace. And they said, nah, we sort of like chaos. Anytime you're kicking against the structure that God has said is good, it always ends up chaotic. That's the story of the Bible. You can read about it again and again. Has anyone read the book of Judges recently? The whole thing is, let's do what's right in our own eyes. God says, this is the structure. This is the order. This is the way of peace. We've got a better plan. And he continues this cycle over and over again. So God has a solution for it, of course. He's going to send somebody, in fact, God the Son, clothed in human flesh to show the way of peace. And I love the book of John where Jesus shows up. It's the same language as Genesis chapter 1. He, he comes, he says, you know, in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he was the light of the world. Right back here in Genesis 1, there's darkness, and God 
brings light. The first thing he does is let there be light. And now in John, when Jesus shows up, he is the light of the world. He is the man of peace. He's coming to a place that has turned chaotic. And he says, I am the peace. I am the light. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. He's restoring shalom. And we know there was a price to it. The only way that could be restored was for him to go to the cross. And we sang about that. So if you want to know freedom, it's only found in Christ. And then Christ says, now that you're in me, this is the way it looks like to continue unpacking and reflecting and experiencing and enjoying and knowing that peace. And some of that is finding God's structure for how we live. It always feels oppressive to us. It just can. And so in Psalm, Psalm 1 talks about the, the, the reality that the way we flourish is by trusting in God's word and working those out. And it sounds so easy in some respects, but it can be very difficult, especially when we reach a, a text like this and we're trying to figure out what's going on. I can assure you, and Paul wants us to know as well, again, again, that there's, there's two very clear things he's saying here in terms of a principle. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace in verse 33. And in verse 40, he says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Why? Because God is a God of peace. This is God's nature. He brings peace from chaos, and man does the opposite. And Paul has used this argument already in the book of Corinthians. In chapter 11, which was another challenging passage. I mean, this is one of the difficulties, I think, the beauties of going straight through God's word. You can't avoid difficult things. I'm telling you, I kind of felt like, would anybody notice if I skipped this passage? Because, you know, the next chapter's got so much great stuff, and this is a little difficult. But it's still, it is God's word. And Paul, before, has already dealt with this in chapter 11, which figures largely into this argument, too. When he talked about men and women with separate roles, but equal value and equal dignity. And that is bringing order and beauty from what could turn chaotic. And in fact, this corporate worship service that we look at and get a glimpse of had become quite chaotic. And so as we think about creation, I think it's a helpful backdrop we also think a, a little bit about context, that, that Paul is bringing order into this first century worship service. He said things have gotten a little bit chaotic. Now, if you've been reading with us this first Corinthians church service, you, you know that it was a bunch of immature believers, he said, who are experiencing their freedom, but without boundaries. And because they didn't experience apply these boundaries, it was not only chaotic and confusing in the assembly, but also to other people who were watching. And it's always challenging when you throw the word context into a biblical message, how much is contextual, especially from a cultural perspective. And people come to different conclusions on that, I get it. But do understand when we looked at chapter 11, for example, with the Lord's Supper, that looked a little different in his context than it does for us. If you remember, it was happening in homes, and I always wondered, how are people getting drunk on the Lord's Supper? <laughs> I mean, number one, some people think it's just grape juice, which I don't know how you get drunk on that. 
but that's what we serve. But let's pretend even it was wine. You'd have to circle back a lot of times <laughs> to get even tipsy on tiny little cups of wine. So the context is a little different when we celebrate communion. Back then, it was happening in homes, and it was attached to an agape feast, a longer set of dinner options where people would bring food, kind of like we typically do, but only people who were wealthy had lots of food. They would arrive earlier because they didn't have the same work schedule, and they would just start partying. They would just start eating and drinking and drinking to excess. And then when somebody shows up to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, there's nothing left for them. And if you were just to read 1 Corinthians 11 and think about our worship service, you would wonder like me, how are people getting drunk in this? There was a different context in that respect. So, So it does figure into the way that we read a passage like this. When Paul says, for example, women, you should remain completely silent. When I think about context, you have to also think about the context of the, of the book itself. In chapter 11, verse 5, for example, he gives, he gives what it looks like if a woman's going to pray or prophesy. You know, the head covering. We tried to digest that issue together as well. So to be internally consistent, it wouldn't make sense if he said, here's what it looks like if you're going to pray or prophesy, and now you have to be completely silent. He's only a few words longer into his argument. And so it's, what's, what's happening here, it doesn't seem like he's saying, on the one hand, here's how you do it, and then now you can't do it at all. He's already established the decorum that's needed if a woman is to engage in this action. And second, it seems... Uh, that is more specifically addressing, even within this context, the practice of prophets speaking and then being evaluated, whatever that looked like. And people would get up and give a message, and then there was some discussion about whether it was actually from God. Now, we benefit greatly from not only the completion of God's word, and it's, it's finished, so I, I would argue that we don't have to have those debates in quite the same way that it was happening when this, Christ, this church was first uh, unfolding. But also we stand on the tradition of 2,000 years of people talking about what it is that the basic doctrine of Christianity. When we declared our faith with the Apostles' Creed, you did that based on something that was written hundreds of years later, after even this text was written, when people sat around and said, what is uh, the Bible, the canon, what, what we call the canon, the completed word of God? How do we understand its doctrines? How do we put it together and codify it? And then how do we declare its basic essential truths? That didn't exist back then. Back then. So there was a more weighing going on. Is it in line with what's happened before? The reality is, too, that in that context, women generally lacked uh, the education that men had. You see this still going on, don't you, in modern, uh, all around the world? You can't get educated. You can't do this. And so when you think about you're trying to put yourself back into that context. You have this new community with believers who were experiencing freedoms but needed some boundaries. And Paul's just said in the previous verses, if somebody comes in and looks around and doesn't understand what's going on, then you might as well not be doing it at all. So it seems legitimate to suggest that he's giving some boundaries in that context to make sure that the gospel is intelligible and to take away every barrier from hearing it. 
That's what he's been saying in chapter 9. That's what he said in chapter 8. There's something going on here. And he's carrying out that same argument. The role of women in that day, the desire to make the gospel accessible and to remove all barriers. And 1 Corinthians 9 makes it clear. He's saying, I'll do whatever is possible to make sure that other people have access to the gospel. And if you look at the scriptures as a whole, you do have examples of women featured as leaders at different times. In the Old Testament and the New Testament narratives as well. What that looks like then is kind of all put together to suggest that there is, as we read this statement, a context that does have some boundaries, I would say, in its application that apply to this first century worship service. Now, you could say that about a lot of other things. I get it and I understand. But that's me doing the best work I can to have fidelity to the text, not only for what's right here, but what's come before and to some extent what will come after and then also what happens in the life of the church moving forward. If you're still confused, I'm sorry. I've done the best I can with that. But I'm, I, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that this doesn't mean that if you're a woman here today and you say, ouch, you're kicked out of the church because you stubbed your toe. Or does it even mean that you have no platform for sharing? In fact, I would recommend and suggest that we do have opportunities to do it. One of the reasons, and really an application of this text, I believe, too, is stories of grace, which we're going to do today. Because in the stories of grace, you have an opportunity to speak no matter who you are, but within the bounds of a certain context that we have given. And I do see that as, a, as an application. And one of the beauties of the Corinthian church is it was kind of, I remember a, pro, a professor describing it like free-range chickens. Um, like it just seemed like everybody was doing what they wanted. And so Paul said, hold on now, we need to give some structure and some order. And sometimes in the attempt to give structure and order, you forget the beauty of the free-ranging chicken part of the thing too. But it is to be done fitting in, in, in an orderly way. Now, whatever you do when you come to a text like this, I want to encourage you that the third word for today is gospel, the good news of Christ. And this is the fundamental basis on which Paul's been writing this entire book. You know, if you go back to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that Paul says here very, very clearly, uh, and if you, if you look, for example, at verse uh, 29... That's 28. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, because... The tendency of man, again, because of sin, is to take something that uh, is supposed to bring peace and make it chaos. We lamented back in chapter 11 how men have abused any sense of position in their authority. Much to our shame. That does not image God. 
In fact, the gospel itself takes any sense of superiority you might have, no matter what your skin color or nationality, no matter what your position or gender, and it sucks it right out of you. Because it's not because of you that you have any status, even before God. You're not a son or a daughter of God because you were more lovely than somebody else. Out of his good pleasure, he regenerated, renewed your heart, called you as one of his family members. There is no room for superiority. And this is something that Paul got really upset about with people in the church who have positions of authority. And one of them being Peter, the rock. And Peter is misapplying his position and status and said, I'm better than somebody who wasn't eating with those Gentiles. And Paul calls him out in the carpet, publicly shames him, as it were, and says, you don't understand the gospel at all. God has made it clear there's no favoritism. It doesn't matter who you are or who you were. God himself has brought from that chaos Peace. Now, how can you then take that peace and make it chaotic by believing you're better than somebody else? This really frustrates Paul. And so we know for a fact, confidently, the gospel that he is preaching says there's no room for superiority. The cross is the great leveling ground. And in its application, it elevates everybody's status, especially if you're a woman. Especially because the status then was nothing. And then Paul says, because of Christ and what you've done, you are valued way more than you could possibly conceive, can imagine. Elevates everybody's status, no matter where you are. Because you're in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. That's it. It doesn't take away any sense, at least it seems in the church, of structure and position. But it does remind us of the dignity and value of everybody. But because we are humans, when we see that order, we abuse it. And now that order then can be thrown away. Because we've misused it. And that's not right. We need to confess of that and repent it and say, God, show us. That the gospel itself leaves no room for superiority. In fact, everyone matters. Everyone. In, in chapter 12, Paul's been arguing that. You might feel like a heel in the body of Christ. Okay, so maybe you are. You're important. You matter. Those parts that we think don't matter at all are essential to the body. Everyone matters. He's just coming out of that argument in chapter 12, leading into love in chapter 13. Everyone contributes. You each, as a son or daughter, have a unique contribution. And if you withhold that from the body, the body suffers. We need you. Every, I don't care who you are. Men, women, children, doesn't matter. You have a role in the body of Christ. Paul, that's what he's been saying. And I, I think it's interesting here too, after this statement about, about women, that he goes on to say in verse uh, 36, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? It, it, it almost feels like he's rebuking the husbands he's just referred to as well, who might think, see, I'm better than you. You have, did the word of God originate with you? Did you speak things into existence? Did you give order and structure? See, if you're going to boast, 
It's not in your status or your position. It, Paul says it's in what Christ has done. You're going to boast in anything? Boast in the cross of Christ. You have any status or any position and you abuse it, you are not living out the gospel. And in fact, you're reinforcing the fact that God's order can lead to chaos. Shame on you. Repent and confess your sin. Did the word of God originate with you? And of course, the understood answer is not at all. So out of this text, let me suggest there are some principles that we can firmly take out of this. And one is that God is a God of order. And that is reflected in corporate worship. That is reflected corporate worship. In corporate worship. I mean, Paul makes that statement pretty clear. What that looks like, of course, you have to work out. But, but the, the gathered community is a reflection of God being a God of order. And, and it, it, it's kind of maybe how you conduct a service, but I think it's a collective reality, too, that God has taken the chaos of our own lives and brought peace out of it. And because God is a God of order, that itself is a source of peace. We find an anchor and a refuge in the reality that God has, has ordered things according to his design. And we, we need that. We need that assurance. And so therefore, we can know peace because we serve a God not a, of confusion, but a God of peace. That is something we all long for as humans. And it goes way back to the garden. We long for a restoration of peace. And God has said, I've done it. There's peace in my son. That is how you know it. And there's peace as well as you move forward. When things get chaotic in your life, this is a pretty good text to go to. God is a God of peace. I need to find peace in the chaos. Can I? Yes. Look back at this. He is a God of peace. And, and the thing is, we're sort of in this time when we're waiting for that peace to be fully resolved and the proof positive it will be comes in chapter 15 in Jesus' resurrection. But Paul is giving us a teaser here and also a reminder that he's already shown how he's a God of peace by bringing order out of chaos. And then finally, roles are not to be despised but cherished and nurtured for the strengthening of the church. The functions, the forms, the, the roles that God has given, the part that we play is not to be despised. God's given this, and, and this is a theme that comes out quite a bit too. Not only in this text, that everything's done for the strengthening of the church as it began. Uh, that, that everything can be, uh, in, uh, everyone may be instructed, encouraged. That's the purpose of the design. Strengthening, encouragement. In this text alone, instruction. That's what happened in the previous text too. That's why he says, if somebody's speaking in an unknown tongue that's not translated, it's not helpful. And that was happening quite a bit. And God says, that's chaotic and I don't reflect that. So that's my best shot at, uh, at this text. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging one. And, and, and I have lingering questions that I try to sort out as well, people practice this in, in, in different sorts of, of ways, too. Uh, but I do think an application out of this, uh, I hope you can see that, is even back there in verse 26, 
When you come together, you have a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, tongue or interpretation, the strengthening of the church, this kind of free-ranging opportunity for some to share within bounds that have been provided. I, I kind of picture a, a river. If a river has you know, the, the banks and it's free-flowing and beautiful, but there are banks to it. If you take the banks away, it creates chaos. So we're doing the best that we can you know, as we have elders and deacons and pastors and who should be in that role to, to, to have integrity to the structure God's given while recognizing with humility, we could, be, we could be wrong about this. You know, if you think everything I say up here is 100% right, that's a, take it and weigh it on, on, on your own. I, I will be wrong in some things. I'm, we're doing the best that we possibly can. I don't want to be wrong. I don't aim to be wrong. I'm trying to dig and find and discover and apply. But if I've got it all right, you know, this is why we stand too on the people from the past and you look to others and man, we're doing the best we can. But if we have any sense of pride and superiority, like we've got it figured out, even denominationally, the PCA has got it. And everybody else, we're 0.0001% of the entire Christian world, and we got it figured out? I mean, come on. How arrogant does that sound to you? I'm pretty arrogant to me. I want to be right. I aim and labor and, and, and strive to be right at the best of we possibly can. Of course, that's our job. But we also have to step back in humility and say we might be a little off. And some of this, and I'm grateful there'll be a time when it's clear. Now we see in part. Then we'll see clearly. That doesn't mean we don't try to see as best we possibly can. I've been throwing the glasses on and off this morning. <laughs> Help me give clarity. And thankfully we do, even in a denomination like ours, have some, some standards and some, some things like, hey, we're doing the best we can. This is what it is. And so that, those are kind of provide boundaries for us. But with humility. I hope you see that. We're doing the, the best we can. Now, whatever, whatever this text, however it's worked out, we know for a fact these principles are true. God's bringing peace. And that everything that's done is done for the strengthening and encouragement of the church. That's the aim. That's the goal. That's the target. And so I, I think that's why Stories of Grace is a great opportunity. Uh, and, and really some good framing for it, too, for the strengthening of the church. Uh, for encouragement. That's why we share, because it's not just me from up front, although we do have a vetting process, an ordination process of saying, hey, have you done the hard work? Do we see you have the gifts for it? And then you can speak to everyone. But there's also more than that. We all, each of us has something to share at the same time as well. So that's part of why we even do this. So what do you have to share?